from WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station. Welcome. I'm Warren Odestulet, and this is A Baha'i Perspective. A Baha'i Perspective is a radio program presenting biographical interviews of people who have chosen the Baha'i faith as a way of life. Today, I'm playing an interview with Pascal Akimana. Pascal grew up in Burundi under extremely violent conditions, both within his family and without. He provides an enlightening historical perspective on the situation both in Burundi and Rwanda. I started the interview by asking Pascal to describe growing up in Burundi. I was born in Burundi, in the central East Africa. It's a small country neighboring, um, surrounded by three countries, Republic Democratic of Congo and Rwanda and Tanzania. That's where I was born and I grew up uh, in the uh, very um, modest family and uh, in the also conflict set-up zone because of the, uh, the war that erupted. So I was made to leave the country of the early age, um, but before even the civil war happened, I lived in the uh, violent uh, situation at my household, the violence uh, between my parents who were arguing. And, uh, but also it was a community problem thing. It was a violence, uh, this violence is violence against women and girls and women's domestic violence. So I grew up in the family where a man take role and men assume um, leadership. A man feels that he's in charge on top and women uh, should follow and girls or girls' children should not necessarily have a primary chances of going to school like boys and there are certain house um, hold issues that they need to take care of and get, boys will be encouraged to do certain chores and activities. I grew up in that context. My mother was born alone. Her father uh, was forced to look for another wife because uh, my grandma could not produce boys. Or, so my mother, being a girl, she was then forced to get married early. She didn't get a chance to go to school like other, other children. So she had me actually when she was 16. But her marriage didn't go well, so my father really didn't treat her well. And my family's father didn't like her very much. And some communities or some families in Africa, certain families interfere in, in, the, in, the, in the marriage of their sons or daughters. So that was the case of my, my father. I remember when he chased her away, just within one hour, uh, he brought another woman who became my stepmother. So that was a clear that the whole fighting that my father had with my mom was uh, faithfulness in, in their union. But also there was really a physical abuse, uh, beating, and uh, not only to my mother, but even to the children. So I was really um, abused and 
harassed by my father. So that's kind of set up of the my family level. And during that situation, my mother have left. Um, I am raised by stepmother. I think she came when I was seven, eight. We are four, two boys and two girls. Uh, I'm the firstborn. Then there's a conflict that just erupted in 1993. I did I didn't know about. We grew up knowing, not knowing as children about different ethnic groups. And here we're told that one group is killing another. So one ethnic group is killing us. This has been happening for years. And so we were forced to go to DRC and DRC, Republic Democratic of Congo. My village is very neighboring border to the Republic Democratic of Congo. That was the easier way whenever we ran to go to DRC. So everyone heard about Rwanda. What's the relationship in time between the genocide that occurred in Rwanda and that of Burundi? That's a very important question. That's one thing that is on my heart because Burundi and Rwanda share the same almost same things, same language, same ethnic groups, same food. Before the colonization, it used to be one country. People might have decided to write history the way they want, but when you look at the map and when you see the ties um, that links these two countries and these people, they are very similar. It's like Kinyarwanda, which is a language spoken in Rwanda, and Kirundi, it's like speaking American English and Canadian English or the British English. And we go to Rwanda back and forth. Now, when during the colonization, Burundi and Rwanda, they were first colonized by Germans. During the World War II, they left. And under the UN umbrella, Burundi and Rwanda was made to be governed, ruled by Belgians and through the French um, system. So the Belgians came through uh, Republic Democratic of Congo entering Burundi. The Belgians implemented a very harsh policy where they measured Burundian people by nose and heart and, you know, then they will say, since you have a sharp nose, you are tall and slim and you are Tutsi. Since you are heavier, you have a flat nose and you are Hutu. Therefore, Hutus, they need to work uh, for Tutsis. Tutsis, and then they made that policy very clear that they excluded other people, that people were intermarrying before, people were living together before. There was, of course, class before, but that was not an issue. But now it became a problem where one ethnic group got a chance to go to school. Others didn't, both in Burundi and Rwanda. And they really implemented that. It went on years and years. So Burundians, Hutus, would work in the coffee plantation and tea plantation. And Tutsis in Burundi, they went to school and uh, they worked in the administration with the, with the Belgians. They were priests and all those kind of administration work. But they kept questioning why why they were excluded, why they were not getting other equal chances. Because even in school... I remember even when I went to school, there are certain classes or certain materials that you'll be allowed to take if you were Hutu and that you'll not. It was clear. In Rwanda, it was the same. Now, here it becomes problematic during the struggle fighting for independence and so on. Belgians, their exiting strategy was not well managed. After they have lived and disorganized the country in that ethnic style of governing and leadership, 
on the continent there was a move of independence. Burundi and Rwanda got independence at the same day. When it was clear that certain group now was allowed to have access to certain resources, going to school, having health care, and forced to work for the same person whom yesterday they were living together. And now it became a form of slavery. That's what happened. Tutsis were superior. Hutus were inferior. Hutus lived in the... It was apartheid. It's clear. And in the, the Belgians, when they left in Rwanda, which has come to become a little bit different from Burundi, in Rwanda, they encouraged Hutu because Hutu in Rwanda have have really struggled a lot and they have cried so much. They they gave power to Tutsis who let, who continue governing, but behind the back they encouraged Hutus to rise up to say, "Yes, you have to speak up." And Hutus had way majority. They were having economy because they were working in the cafe and tea. They were going to Uganda exporting, and they they had the resources to mobilize themselves and then to rise up against. And then they did that. There was a first massacre about Tutsis, and I remember the history where I still remember quite well is 1959. Tutsis were forced to go to exile. Some they went to the neighboring countries in Uganda, Burundi, and, and DRC. Now the Hutu took over. Then in Burundi, the Tutsi took over. You know, they maintained that power because they, cont- they controlled military, they controlled all sorts of institutions. That's why you'll find like it Tutsis in Rwanda, they will be in exile in Burundi because the Burundian, uh, the country in Burundi was managed by Tutsi. But other Tutsis went to DRC. Today they are called Banyamurenge. They are, and they were so unhappy because they lived in DRC for more than 20, 30, 40 years without being acknowledged a citizen under the dictatorship rule of Mobutu. And others went to Tanzania and Uganda. So they were scattered around. Now, that conflict, that already warning was not dealt with. So people are in exile for so many years. There's something have happened. People are not talking about it. In Burundi, the administration that was there, that's after the, we got independence in 1962, Hutus were already in pain because since the white people left, they have seen how they were segregated and the rule continues. They got independence, it's still continuing, and then some Hutus who are who seem to be very intellectuals or who speak up, who seem to be very wise, and they will be killed one by one. And my uncle, 1972, there was a massacre of Hutus, was in exile in DRC, and he went to Rwanda. Now, over the years, Hutus who went to in exile, they mobilized themselves. And there are many, because Hutus in, in Burundi, they make like 85% and 10% are Tutsi. Now, I would say if any problem, if unmanaged conflict happens, or anything that seems to be a, a conflict, if one does not address it, it just needs a trigger for the big thing to erupt. So what happened in Burundi, I lived playing with Tutsis. I never knew that there was a problem. My dad never talked about it. My grandpa used to tell me that, oh, people are very good, and but there are some people who are not good. They will talk like metaphors that I don't understand. Now, the administration that was there since the coup d'etat independence and led by Tutsi in Burundi continued, and it was a military dictatorship. 
continued to execute people and those who were lucky they will go to in exile so there was massacres for instance in Burundi this is a bigger thing it's very into my heart people blame africa why africa is not developed Burundi for instance and i would believe in other african countries that i have visited there was so much loss from the slavery time men and women were taken they were strong heavy and intelligent people and they were taken out of those society it takes years and time for the africa to reproduce again when the slavery is kind of ending here we are introduced to the issues of uh, colonization and the colonization comes with loss killings and, and all those people could speak up and so on again there are people who are tough and strong them that are being killed the colonization ends we are getting independence the independence comes again with bloodshed now the bloodshed kills many people again so it takes time for africa to rebuild and particularly my country and that independence we got it but on the price that i'm talking about and it leaves we got independence we got freedom but it leaves us with a big scar where people divide themselves they kill each other and they, this unresolved conflict up to date now a country like Burundi where people have been in exile some were killed in exile they never got a chance to talk about how they felt even their families they've they hear the stories and so on they have never been a reconciliation they have never been addressed on how people feel instead they have been witnessing crime continuing and no one questions so there was a culture of impunity both in Burundi and Rwanda so the military dictatorship continued and until the hutu say no enough is enough they organized themselves they under the pressure and the international community you know really intervened because they had documented all these killings they now they introduced 1990 they introduced multi party system in burundi then the hutus who were in exile they came they under very heavier painful process of negotiation with the with the government they allowed to form parties 1993 it was the first democratic elections in burundi the president who was elected was a hutu he ruled for three months he was killed again by the tutsi's dictators who took over power again they rule 1994 our president who was put there in, in place was killed in rwanda in the airplane that triggered the genocide So you cannot talk Rwanda without mentioning Burundi. So Rwandans and Burundians they mix each other. We have lost people in Rwanda, Rwandans have lost people in, in Burundi. It's very complicated. Tutsis in Burundi who are in government helped Tutsis, Rwandans Tutsis who are in exile in Burundi and we know each other, we, we know those things. However, it's a big thing. It's, it's a very global mm. problem. Yeah, I always say in my mother tongue they say you know when two elephants are fighting what suffers most is the grass. And my family have been affected. I have lost many people in Rwanda during the genocide who are Burundis and and Burundi I have lost many aunts and uncles and we our houses have been destroyed and have been exiled, have interrupted my studies because the way who i am and um, i'm coming from the mixture family and people will say i'm not a hutu full time 100% hutu i'm not a tutsi 100% so one will think who am i where do i belong to there's a time where i was thinking why was i born in this nation or in this region 
being angry and questioning at the same time when when they, I call down, I come to my senses. I say maybe there's a reason for 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 me having born in this particular country. Maybe I need to do something about bringing peace or something to address some injustice, some problems in this country. What is the status of those of mixed tribal heritage? Again, it's who decides to write the history. Who has power decides to write what, when. What I have heard from different people, Hutus, they are Bantu people. They came from Central Africa, like your Congo Brazzaville, Cameroon, going descending, and then they spread. During that time, they cultivate, they live like that. And then Tutsis are uh, what we call Nilotic. Nilotic, they came from the northern part of uh, Ethiopia, Somalia, and they came with the cows and sheep and cattle. They were very nomadic and moving, looking for the pastures, for the animals. Then they lost the language because they had to integrate anywhere they went. And there's another what we call indigenous people called Abatkwa. Tkwa, the minority, they are very 1%, both in Burundi and Rwanda. These people intermarried long time ago because they speak one language, one culture. It's Kirundi that's spoken. We are not like DRC where we have like hundred and something languages or dialects. Many people have lost their lives because of their physical appearances. But again, there's no language that will describe this as a Tutsi. There's no food or traditional culture. Pascal, tell me your personal story as a result of the conflict in Burundi. I grew up in a very violent family where domestic violence was kind of my daily bread. I was told that I'm ugly, I'm nothing, I look like uh, stupid by my own father who was supposed to care and love for me. And that was the because of the issues that he had with his wife, who's my mother. I grew up with a very, very anger towards my dad. But when I looked around, it was not only in my family, it was even in the whole entire community. Women were being brutally abused and harassed. Their rights were very violated by their loved ones. And I grew up with a very anger towards my dad. And I didn't understand why we were supposed, I was supposed to be raised by my stepmother. I would imagine no one, no child wants to be raised by, you know, the stepmother. My stepmother was okay, but there were some things it's about stepmother. She will, she will refuse to give me food. She will beat me up. She will report me to my dad. He will beat me up like I have committed crimes. And, and I grew up taking care of my sisters. My, my, my father had money. He was just taking care of his wife and, uh, moving around with his, other women and uh, drinking and uh, I remember I grew up not having shoes, not having clothes and uh, my mother, had, when when she left home, she went to her house and she, my father was going there to harass her there and beating her up and the only way to get protection was to get married so she got married somewhere else I'm, I'm a little confused because normally the firstborn male yeah. is sort of treated special, yet yeah. your father seemed to not... Yeah. He had issues with my mom. When he chased my mother away, 
even children who he had with my mother, who's me and my siblings, were the part of the problem. So he didn't care whether I was born. Actually, I was the first person to challenge him very, very well. I was. I will speak out and I will tell him that when I grow up, I will, I will revenge and I will show him that uh, what he's doing is very wrong. So he will beat me up. He, he didn't give me money for school fees and I, will, I had to do some heavy work from the age of eight, nine. I went fishing. I went to work for people. And one thing that I will never forget, when we were running to DRC 1993, I was 12. We lost each other during the war, the, the way, and uh, my father... But before and, you go there, wh- yeah. why were you running to the DRC in the we first place? We were running to DRC because there was a war that has erupted in Burundi in 1993. The first democratic elected president was killed after three months in the office, and the Hutus were being killed by... A dictator regime, uh, which was a Tutsi-led um, government that has been there since um, the coup d'état after the independence. And this was the pattern of violence, because 1962, we got independence. 1965, there was mass violence, killings on Hutus. 1972, there was mass killings of Hutu, which my uncle ended up going to exile. He escaped death. In 1988, I remember that I was very little. They were killing many Hutus. It was a pattern, and those went on. Now, 1993, it was a mass violence where they killed the president, and the Hutus said, no, enough is enough. We have to form rebellion. And then many people left, and they went to in the bush. Others, they went to exile. So we were running, fleeing, because people were being killed at my village. I jumped. Who was we? When I say we, my family and my people at the village. So your father? My father, my stepmom, and my two sisters, and my stepmother's children. So we joined the crowd that were running to get safety on the another side of, of, of the country. Then we knew how to get different streets and hiding ourselves so that the military don't see us we ran and we entered uh, in the soldiers hands of drc we thought we would be well welcomed but it was bad luck these soldiers started harassing us saying you hutus you are stupid how do you run away from a minority how do you like you are 90 percent you are in running away from 10% of people, why don't you stay and fight? You won't enter the earth, you won't give you. Go back, and it was another trauma. But they were also criminals, and they started beating us and raping women, in which my sister was one of the uh, victims as well. During that time when we were in the earth, my father and I, and I have lost each other We. Like when you run, it's a crowd, so there are many chances of children lost their parents, and uh, it was it's common when people are running. Then I went to the refugee camp. I built a shack, and my sister were, was in the hospital after the rape. She came, and um, I did heavy stuff, and I was very angry and asking myself why was I born, why. 
because I grew up seeing other children who were very good. In their family, there was no domestic violence, and I questioned those things and why, first of all, my lovely mother is not with us. She has run because she was married somewhere else before this violence. My father is not here. My stepmother is somewhere, and I'm stuck with my two sisters. And uh, So I had, I had to assume leadership and matured so faster. At what age? At that time in DRC, I was 12. But I started doing heavy stuff during from the age of 8. That's why I started. Uh, when I, whenever I go to school, I will have to go to fetch water, walk miles, and come back and go to fetch water for somebody, and they will give me money, and then I will buy clothes. And, and then it's, it's a very painful thing, but I think it has made me who I am. And in DRC, we were tired and felt like we better go and die home because you know some refugees were saying that it was in the refugee camp. I wouldn't wish anyone to be a refugee. It was terrible conditions, no water, with cholera and rape and all violence that reminded us about all this. We better, it was hard to be struggling in a foreign land. We felt like we better struggle in our home country, people that kill us, and then we'll just rest. During that time, I stayed and I told my sisters that we need to go back home. But I was very active in politics and I wanted to join the rebels because I felt like many youth were being recruited from the age of seven some were six, seven, eight, nine uh, child soldiers. They were being recruited. People were saying, hey, this is the situation. We have been killed and there's no way we have to take up arms. And I remember we were very curious asking questions and learning and uh, started challenging people that if we're going to fight, we need to define what we are, what we are fighting for here, women who are being raped in this camp that we are so can't we start protecting these ones and uh, what are we fighting for because um, we understand we have to liberate our country but we need to see whether we are really up to what we are saying and and I was very having more philosophical questions at very very early age and and I was lucky to be selected for one of the youth leader who will not join the military who did that selection well, there was a movement uh, that was charged of giving ideology, going to sensitize people and recruiting. It's one of the political party. By then, it was not yet recognized by the government. It was a guerrilla movement called Palipehutu, Parti pour la libération du peuple Hutu. It's a, it's a very old movement that was formed in 1981 in Tanzania. That movement was the was very active and they sent the, the actual movement that the actual party that is governing now so they were in exile they were recruiting and and they were approaching people in the different refugee camps and so i was given a, a role of going to sensitize other youth and carrying the, the ideology and so i had to learn the history i had to um, tell Burundians that I will meet and that kind of was my role in the refugee camp but I felt like it was not enough I had to fight but in deep in my heart I wanted to revenge I wanted to harm my, my father first for chasing my mother away for beating my mother and for committing all those 
horrible things in in front of me and going to Tootsies and so on. But at the same time, I'm like, I was told that I'm a mixture of Tootsies. So, and I'm feeling like, wow. So these are Tootsies who have been killing Hutus for so long. They have intermarried, uh, regardless of what the social co- co- cohesion that they have had, but they have chosen to sideline other ethnic group. And I'm part of that. Whenever I, even in the refugee camp was questioned whether, whether I was a full Hutu and, but I will convince them with my understanding and my argument and talk because people were thinking that I'm a spy. I, you know, I look like a Tutsi. I don't, uh, Tutsis will say I don't look like Tutsis. I look like a Hutu. It was so complicated issue. So that also like, helped me not to take up arms. I felt like I'm going to kill my own people because that's crazy. I better keep talking about the injustice in the refugee camp. And, and the time came and I came back home with my sisters. Quickly, we remember I have been interrupting my education because of this. So I went to the Ministry of Education by myself. I lied. I said I'm a, I don't have parents and I need to go to school and I don't have school fees. And by the time I felt like I was off and I had my dad, but he was, I felt like he was not doing much. So... They sent me to the area, the Hutu. It was an abandoned school, boarding school in the rural uh, Pujumbura. Um, students who were going there were the students who really didn't have, who are very low income background. So it was the heavily guerrilla or rebellion base where they were fighting with the government. I went there, I went to school and boarding school. I studied and they paid school fees for me. And sometimes my dad, once in a while, he will give me money and then I'll take that money and send it to my mother and to my sister. But that uh, school, I had a problem. The government decided to deploy soldiers to come to guard the students. It was in the coffee plantation. The student at uh, the school was very isolated. So this majority of students were Hutus and there were few Tutsis. Because it was a very complicated area to... Hutus were in that area and and then they used to get information. They will kill soldiers. So soldiers, soldiers turned against us. They thought that students were the rebel rebels or we were giving information to the rebels to, so that they may be killed. And then rebels were coming to recruit from school. So they said we have, they, they had an argument, said we, some of the, these rebels were the students who were the same school. They have left going to fight and so they said, we have left school so that we may go to rebellate our country. You are studying what are you studying for, so come and join us. I remember I was sent off uh, on the campus because the headmaster said that I was causing a problem in security at school. The student reported me that I was collaborating with the military. It was not true. But at the same time, I was being generous to both people because that was the way of surviving. If the military suspect that you are not in their side, you don't talk to them, you don't go to their meetings, then you are against them. Now, if the rebels also sub- suspect that you are not, then so I had to play both cards. Well, the, one day the rebels came, they fought, they recruited the headmaster in 1998. And some students and the faculty um, staff and took them to go to fight. And during that time, I... We went in the bush and with other students. And during that time, we left. 
Many people were killed. Many students were killed. My friends, I remember them. So some were not even shot. They, there's a very sharp machetes and other stuff that they will kill. They had some names or they, if they suspect that we are Hutu or Tutsi by just the physical appearance. And we left uh, with other students. We walked miles and I could not go home. And my dad was also in hiding. And it was a chaos, the whole country. I ended up going to another refugee camp in Tanzania. So I lived in Tanzania. Actually, some of the refugees that I work with here, that's how I know I knew them. They were refugees. So in Tanzania, stay there. And, and I went to, luckily, I went to Kenya and then... When I was in Kenya, I went to school in Kenya, and then I wanted to go to back home because that was the only way. Life in Kenya was very hard, and um, my guys that I knew that today, my my peers are the ones who are running the government in Burundi. They, we were together in exile in Kenya and like many ministers, so I felt like I need to go to fight. I need to go home because that was either I would be killed because if you go back home in Burundi after a while, you are being questioned, where have you been? You went to, you joined the rebels movement. And when I went back from Kenya to going to Tanzania, because the only way to go to Burundi from Kenya is to pass through Tanzania or Uganda or whatever, but the safe way was in Tanzania because there was a base of many refugee Burundians who were there. And, but I was told that oh, it was not a safe place, safe time to go. So I have to think, where should I go? People who had money, they left for going very, very far. And um, Now, you had finished your secondary school at yeah. Kenya by this time? Yeah. Actually, I even started college. I didn't go reach that far. And then I just left. 2000 and that, that was up to 2002, I believe. And then I left there in early 2003. So there was fighting in Burundi, there was negotiations going on and trying to see if they could do ceasefire, and I went to South Africa. But remember, during my refugee time, I was volunteering, I was speaking out I was against this violence, I went to churches and praying and just wishing that something can happen. So in South Africa, I volunteered with a small a shelter that was dealing with, was working on getting homeless children, taking them out of streets and take, put them in the shelter. And so I volunteered teaching them. I was a child care worker. That's what I was given as a title. I was helping them with homeworks and go to recruit them. And I felt good about that. So I was volunteering work. From there, I started getting known to the international NGOs. I, I was invited to go to attend a workshop that was, it was focused for uh, educating men on the way they view about, uh, about women, gender stuff and masculinity. And in that workshop, I remember, I was the only man who was opposing other men because they would put these statements like, it's okay to beat up a woman. And the old men would say, yes. And I'm like, no. <laughs> and... Then this man will just see me as an, an enemy. But I came with my own experience at home. How I saw my dad treating my mother. That's where I was speaking from there. I didn't know that the facilitators, they were looking for somebody who might assist them with work. And so that's how I started joining. Then they called me. They said, hey, you want to help us? And we will give you stipend. I even refused. They persisted. and then cause I Why did you refuse? Well, I I was attached to my 
working with street children yeah. and homeless uh, children and I didn't understand it. I thought it was like I have spoken, I have done my workshop, it's fine. But but they say, no, you speak different language. There are many migrants here in Johannesburg. We need we need you to help us. I didn't see it. Anyway, they insisted and and they said, okay, I will come. And say, from there, I will do part-time work. We'll go to speak to different homeless men in the, who were sleeping in the parks. And it was a very violent... Uh, very very violent activities in Johannesburg. Still today, it's a very very violent society yeah. in South Africa, um, and there's infection of HIV and AIDS and all those tons of things. So we needed to do community education, and many refugees and immigrants, particularly because of language barrier and so on, they were very affected. And I happened to speak English and Swahili and French. There were those communities. So, and I joined them at part time and. Apparently, they, I did well, and then they they promoted me to be a peer educator, and then from there... A what educator? Peer educator, oh, okay. yeah. Mm-hmm. The organization was called Engender Health. I was working for the program called Men as Partners. This program was for mobilizing men for a positive masculinity, uh, redefining our masculinity, and, and then working with women organizations and encouraging even men who are not violent to come and stand up, being speak up, not being bystander, bystanders only who don't do anything, saying, encouraging men to stand up, saying, hey, if a man rapes his wife or beats his wife or whoever, he doesn't do it in our name. We need to pass that message. I was very passionate still because those were the just things that spoke to me. I end up working in the southern Africa region, so they expanded the program. I went to Zimbabwe, Zambia, Angola, Namibia, Mozambique, Malawi, that the whole southern Africa region, going to do trainings and workshops. And and later I went to Uganda working with ex-combatants of LRA. I did some few training about how to prepare the community to accept the ex-combatant. And then when you disarm and demobilize, uh, you know, demobilize, you have to reintegrate them in the community, things like that. I kept going back and forth, going to South Africa, and and later I went to Kenya. I worked in the refugee camp. I got a contract, kind of consultant to work with the UNHCR, United Nations High Commission for Refugees. And I went to the border of Sudan and the border of Somalia and did some work with the refugees so that has been my passion. Kind of, I felt my calling was there around violence prevention, peace building work, and I went back and forth visiting home. And my peers now they're in government. They say, "Oh, do you want to come come back? We we can create a position for you in the government." And I don't want to be in politics. And I believe that during that time where I was searching for the faith, and this is where my faith came in. When I was struggling and looking for answers, I didn't get them in different churches. There's a church that I attended in South Africa. It was a Francophone church. Um, I felt like I needed to go to a French-speaking church so that I won't forget my French. So one day I had in trouble with a pastor. He's a very good friend of mine, and he preached a very sermon. He 
that I know and many people know, but he interpreted it differently according to my understanding. He said, God created man to have a dominion over everything. And he elaborates, went to, to develop his sermon saying that the world is confused because men have lost their role. Women have taken over men. And nowadays, women being men. And it was a very patriarchal sermon. And I felt angry because it quickly touched my struggle at home and my mother's struggle. And my mother didn't get a chance to go to school. She always say I would have been like other people. I saw that how my sisters even today have never been because they are they were affected by this. Anyway, the church were cheering. Men were like, mm-hmm. "Oh yeah, speak up!" And men should stand up. A woman must know her way. He must know his place. And that's the God, the Bible, and all. Oh, I felt angry. So after church, I went to tell him, Pastor. The service was very good, but I didn't like the way you kind of elaborate the message because God didn't have domin- didn't give men domi- to have dominion over women. I think there's kind of equality that we should do it. Oh, he blasted me. He said, no, I think we need to pray for you <laughs> because you are lost and so on. And anyway, I had already having issues with churches because I was trying to work with youth and I was once more disappointed with church. I spent time without going, prayed in my house, and but trying to think what, who I am. And there's a time where you go through in life. I went through particularly a time where I felt like maybe I need just to step back and breathe in and then kind of think about me. I would pray in my house. I, I will sing. I love singing because in the struggle... Uh, Singing was kind of comforting thing. Once in a while, I would visit different churches. But because I felt like I'm so attached to the social justice work, violence prevention work, and peace building, I felt like, hey, my identity itself in Burundi, I'm, I prefer to choose not to be either Hutu or Tutsi. Because in Burundi, when you are born from a father who's a Tutsi, you are automatically a Tutsi. Even if your mother is a, you know, you don't choose. You go through the father's side. And I didn't feel that way. I felt like I'm a Burundian. That's what matters. If I can go beyond all these problems, maybe that will be another way of just getting more uh, less stress. Because people they are so attached to their identity, which is a good, which is good and important. But we shouldn't use that identity to sideline others, to exclude others. Tutsis use that in fear of saying that Hutus are going to take over. But it was not true. And because we are so special, we have this uh, Tutsi, like white, and Hutus also say the same. So I felt like, no, no, no I'm a global person. I, I, need, I need to, I defined myself in my own head, though I didn't see it clear. But I really realized it after I was doing my work because I will be in a particular community and encouraging men. Last time I was in Ivory Coast, we went to the rural, rural area. And the chiefs and traditional chiefs, and we did some work. And this chief asked very good questions, saying, if I do things, men will laugh at me. Men will talk bad about me. So what should I do? 
we came back after like two months because we have to follow up. His wife was like, I don't know what you have done to my husband. When we go to the field to go to, he takes firewood on his head. He helps me to go to get water. And I was like, wow, that's a very good testimony. Just using my tongue to talk, it has helped somebody. I have many testimonies, positive testimonies that keep me doing this work. In South Africa, I used to go to the clinic and do some talks because many people, I will find different people in the parks, I will refer them to the clinic, I go to the clinic and encourage them to change their behavior and to really conduct their lives in the safe way. So there's a man who was there and he listened to me and one day he find me in the, in the club and said, oh, Pascal, I didn't even remember him. He said, I remember you. I said, I was so afraid because I felt like he's going to harm me. But he said, you know that time you were talking at the clinic? I will never forget you. He took in the pocket, showed me a condom. He said, since that time, I always walk with my condom. Not that I want to go to do bad behavior or sexual things. No, in case. And I felt so good. This is a country that HIV has, you know, 6,000 people a day die. Mm -hmm. So I have many good stories and that I heard. And mm. that's what keeps go me going. When I came to this country and I... Now, why did you come? To, what are the circumstances that brought you to this country? Well, I was in Ivory Coast working for International Rescue Committee, another U.S.-based NGO. There was a move of violence because the elections were postponed and there was already the weather that I could tell because I come, back, I come from the violent communities and the country. And I felt like... No, this, this is not good for me. And I have worked there and, and I could feel, and I had a dream already that the violence was going to come. The expatriate colleagues that I was working with, they will be evacuated and I'll be stuck there. And I'm very sensitive to my dreams. The dreams that I don't forget, they mean something. So I started arranging it, said, Either I need to go back home, but at the same time, I need to go to school. I need to rest as well. I need to go to some place where I can breathe. And, and anyway, so that's where I came here to study. I came to study, but at the same time, I wanted to um, relax a little bit emotionally and uh, psychologically and living and supporting my siblings and my mother. But the bigger thing was to invest in my education because I have interrupted my education for many, many years. I haven't finished my my bachelor's degree and I want to go back home to do some work. So I felt like I have built a very good reputation in the field. So I need, I need some credentials that could back me up. And that was the main reasons I came here. Likely I came here and then I was connected to the organization that I worked with in the, back in Africa. They said, oh, we would love you to join us. That's how I ended up coming to Springfield. And when I went to Springfield, I just met like refugees that I've seen in 10 years when I was in Tanzania. I felt like I'm in the community again. So I'm doing this refugee work, organizing refugees and mobilizing them. We have different projects. Now we are doing a gardening. Uh, we are having a culture and dance and where we tell our stories and we are feeling like it's part of teaching even the younger ones not to forget where they come from, language and back and forth. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I want to make sure that I have a program where we can process 
our 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 unspoken stories and trauma because we haven't done that and i can see there's a very violence in the in the in the refugee because they were brought straight from the refugee camps no electricity no microwave no running water and being dropped in springfield it's so overwhelming some they are already being in trouble with the law and the us government has done great to bring them here but i think there's a this much have to be done to follow up to help them kind of integrate fully there's this kind of that gap so that's where i come in and there's there's too much to be done and right. yeah so you also continue your spiritual journey here i'm continuing my spiritual journey and luckily when i came here i was like connected my friend of mine I was i meant to say gave me a book and i was reading this book and this Say an American lady who was married to a, who's married to a Rwandese. They live in Chicago. She wrote her story and then how you know the, the titles "Waiting for the the Sunrise," one uh, family story of uh, racism, discrimination, and genocide. So she talked about the story and she kept quoting the Baha'is teachings and writings and and I went to Google about these scriptures and that's how I. On the first page, I saw the Baha'i faith and believing in the global unity, humanity, and peace, and justice, and education. And I'm like, what? I have never seen any faith or, you know, that's kind of their main mission and goal. It's kind of, really? I know many do that. They're part of that. But then, I, but somehow in my eyes, there was kind of some particular thing that uh, the Baha'i faith was committed to do uh, both local and international. I Google and I read, and I continue reading the book. I took like some time just Googling the activities and then I end up contacting some Baha'is and, and that I talked to. And, and I felt, wow, this religion talks about peace, unity, er- eradicating and prejudices and that. This is where I need to be. This is where I belong. This is, this is my work. This is who I am. And this is where I think I need to associate myself with. And I felt like I have been doing all the good work that the Baha'is are required to do without knowing that I was. That's, that's kind of how I felt. And I felt so happy. Honestly, I felt so happy that I have been to different sects of Christianity uh, churches and there's a particular feeling that I have uh, found. I'm not saying that all churches are not good, but I I just feel like there's no that kind of supremacy. There's no kind of one man preaching and there's no, you investigate for yourself and um, you come, you meet with people, you ponder the text and you read and you reflect and you meditate, you come back and, and especially that the more emphasis about humanity doing some community work, that's that's what we need to even to talk more because this world is is sick and it's crazy. So that's that's my spiritual journey, mm. and I'm very very happy about that. Mm. And I have my regular routines, uh, meditation, or whatever the work that I do, and knowing that. By doing that, I'm fulfilling my my spiritual requirements. And what are your plans now? My plans now is to go to school. I am taking some classes at community college, and 
I'm going to do part-time classes completing my BA and at the same time I'm continuing to do my community work with the refugees and whenever I finish my BA I'm going to going to do my uh, masters I hopefully it won't take me long because there's a program that I'm interested at at UMass it's called University Without Walls. It's a very program designed for adults uh, who have uh, tons of experience, but they are lacking uh, cre- academic credentials. So I want to go to do that. Immediately I will do my graduate studies. When I'm done, I'm going back to Africa. I feel there's so much to be done in Africa, and I love this country. I'll be coming back and forth, but there's so much to be done. We are lacking skills. We are lacking infrastructure. We are, and for many reasons that I've said here about Africa. So we need not only Africans are concerned, but even the whole global people have to come do the peace. I feel like that's where my work needs to be more focused. But while I'm going to school, I, of course, I continue my work here. Yeah. Now, you have some friends that are trying to raise funds to help you yeah. do this, get your education. Tell me about that. My spiritual colleagues and friends mm-hmm. that I interact with, we talk, we share about humanity and global issues. They are very loving people. They thought that you will think with me how, because it's very hard for me to get a scholarship and uh, so to cover my summer classes, two classes that I'm going to, I think, to start next month. And the visa, because my lawyer is applying for renewing the visa, so we have to collect like 1600 for the application for the visa. I need that, those friends, again, to, to meet up with me, to, to think about what, be, what other ways we can think of fundraising. So I'm going to speak to different people and hoping that if I can get somewhere, continue to speak to schools or whatever that I can get. I'm looking for the piece of work, things that I can do, because the work that I do with the refugees is voluntarily work. My friends have been very helpful, and they are there, and they are helping me. They have started a Pascal Akimana Scholarship Fund, and I have started my class, actually, at SIT in Vermont, Graduate School for International Training, I did a summer class of conflict transformation and peace building. I'm doing a online certificate, so that's kind of a half master. When I finish that, I'll just go for one year to complete my master's. So I'm kind of excited. I feel like I'm almost going to kill two birds with one stone, but I need support. For so what's the website that people can go to to this, learn more about this, this uh, effort? One organization, the organization I work for, Men's Resources International, www.mensresourcesinternational.org. You know, there are very good people around here who are helping, and this has helped me to understand the American from within, because many people, when they're out of this country, including myself before I came, I mostly knew America as like a George Bush, <laughs> you know, America, you know, and it's been very humbling and a very good experience for me to know about America and Americans within the country. What we think, you know, from outside of this country, what we see on media, what it's not always reflecting the American people. So that's kind of what the big lessons that I've learned and people who are supporting me, the Americans. And many people are not even 
religious or no, it's just people who are passionate about touching someone's life, changing the world or contributing to this change and transformation. Yeah, of yeah, uh, people who I've talked to have expressed this effort as not so much as investing in an individual but investing in Burundi. I am so happy to hear that because Burundi is a very almost abandoned country. It's a like a third or second poorest country in the world. Illiteracy is very high and there's so much corruption. There's, people are dying of hunger. Hunger because we are lacking just a basic, like now I'm doing gardening. I already learned a lot. I know what I will do in Burundi when I go back. We have tons of land. We have rain that comes down, but we don't know how to utilize water. We don't just the basic things, the basic healthcare, public health education that we can tell people to protect from themselves or drinking clean water or washing themselves, just the basic things. For me, is to go direct to the ground and build the capacity of villagers, uh, people on the ground, help them so that they may help themselves. And that's the best investment that we can ever do and be happy of. And by helping me, it's another way of, of helping, reaching out to many Burundians. And we hope that we will overcome this. We are together in this. And I actually encourage people to visit Burundi. It's a very beautiful country. It was torn out by war for many, many years. It's struggling to rebuild. Uh, it's a post-conflict. So there's a much, much to be done. Well, Pascal, thank you so much for sharing your story and your plans for the future. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Pascal Akimana, a young man who was able to transcend his violent upbringing to work for justice. For a copy of this and other interviews, you can go to the website www.abahaiperspective.com. For information specifically on the Baha'i faith, you can go to the website www.baha'i.org or you can call the toll-free number 1-800-22-UNITE. I hope you'll join me next time on A Baha'i Perspective. This is WXOJLP Northampton, 103.3 FM, your Valley Free Radio Station, streaming at www.valleyfreeradio.org.